0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of t for c If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to be a sports and a news talent agent, then this is the episode for you because my next guest founded IF Management 24 years ago, and it's an industry leader representing over 250 radio and television personalities. Today, he's the president of the Montag Group, a sports and entertainment talent and marketing consultancy, which merged with IF Management about four years ago. But before I introduce you to Steve Herz, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays, and it's got unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Steve Hurz, president of the Montag Group, also known as TMG, which is a sports and entertainment talent and marketing consultancy. Steve is also a career advisor to CEOs, lawyers, entrepreneurs, and young professionals, Prior to joining TMG, Steve was the president and founding partner of If Management, an industry leader whose broadcasting division became one of the largest in the space. Today TMG represents over 250 television and radio personalities, some of the biggest names in sports and news media including NBC Sports Mike Tarrico, ESPN Scott Van Pelt and Dan Schulman and CNN's chief international correspondent Clarissa Ward. He is also the author of the new book Don't take yes for an answer, using authority, warmth, and energy to get exceptional results. And if you want to learn how to break into the talent industry, please check out show notes for this episode to see if Steve's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Steve, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on life and ready to go?
1: I'm fired up. Let's do it.
0: Okay. Excellent. Well, we should let our audience know that you and I actually met, was it 15 years ago when I was still a journalist? Yes. And I was with CNN. And I am curious, do you remember, and it's okay if you don't, did we just run into one another or did we actually have a meeting?
1: No, we had a meeting. We had a lunch in a restaurant in Washington. At the time, you were thinking about hiring an agent. And we met with my done colleague, Melissa Breen, myself, and you, and we had a nice lunch.
0: Well, I might still be a journalist today if I had actually joined your agency, because yeah. I think uh might have been two or three years after that, CNN didn't renew my contract. That was 2007. And I guess I just decided I was done with that industry Because my son was three and a half years old and I had never seen him. And anyway, I wanted more work life balance. But you see, bad on me, Steve.
1: No, come on. You know, in Boston, they had that big album, Don't Look Back, right?
0: No, and I don't. And truly, I will say to any of our young listeners who are interested in journalism and, and may face what I did, which was a decision that I wasn't the new president of CNN's cup of tea, it's a subjective business. It was, honest to God, it was incredibly painful and humiliating to go through, but it was a blessing in disguise. And today I am incredibly grateful because I wouldn't have left on my own because I didn't think there was anything else I could do. I thought I had been a journalist for 20 years and I couldn't think of anything else I could do. So at any rate, I say that because, Steve, I'm sure you have dealt with these situations many times with various clients who, for one reason or another, aren't aligned with the new management or they just part ways. And I have no doubt that some of those clients who leave the industry end up finding out that they are happier outside of it than they were in it.
1: Absolutely. You know that expression, a blessing in disguise.
0: Exactly. So I thought we could kick off our caffeinated chat, Steve with an overview of what the Monta Group does and why you decided to merge IF, the company you founded 24 years ago, with TMG.
1: So when I ran IF, it was a small company of about seven or eight people representing news and sportscasters, and the industry started to change. There was a lot of bigger agencies getting into the space and trying to offer clients a lot more ancillary services, whether it was, you know, the ability to write a book, literary agency, commercial agency, voiceover, things of that nature. And we didn't offer a lot of those services. And when I joined forces with Sandy Montag, who had run IMG Media for 20 years, the combination of the two agencies gave us the ability to offer a lot more services to our clients, in addition to, you know, having, I think, really a lot less conflicts of interest in terms of we don't represent that many clients, we could still have those same very high level relationships with the executives who are going to make the call on whether you're going to get hired or retained or promoted, what have you, but also not to do it for a 1000 people. You know what I mean? So that was the thinking. And also, you know, I knew Sandy for a long time, he was the 10 ton gorilla in the space, but he was always a really just a quality guy. And unlike a lot of other agents in the space, he never tried to poach my clients. He was always very respectful of me and respected what I did. And I think we just had a lot of good karma and chemistry together. So when he approached me four years ago and said, hey, I'd like to go start my own business. I'm leaving IMG. I could do it myself, but I'd like you to be my partner. I said, great. Where do I sign on? And that was it. We shook hands and we've been together ever since.
0: You've already touched on the fact that the agency world has changed over the last 24 years since you got into it. What do you think the biggest changes have been and how has it changed the role of a talent agent?
1: Well, there's so many different things that have happened in the industry, so many different changes. I would say that like the news business, for example, the local news business really changed a lot. It's been a slowly diminishing business. So that's one thing. And then at the same time, since 1996, you've had this burgeoning cable business. All you had is CNN when I first started. And then almost right away, you had Fox News and you had MSNBC. And so then you had this tremendous competition there. And then you have had this gigantic growth of cable. That was kind of a tailwind that we had in our business for a long time. And then you had also this huge tailwind of sports growth. Remember, we're in both sports and news. So you had all these different cable networks starting up. ESPN had one network when I then they had ESPN two, ESPN Classic, ESPN News, and then you also had Fox Sports starting all these cable divisions and all these regional sports networks. And then you had the leagues, MLB, NBA, NFL, you had conferences, the Big Ten network launched, and all these places created so many different jobs for our clients. So in a way, if you couldn't succeed as a talent agent over the last 25 years, then you really couldn't do it, right? I mean, there was never a better time to do this. My timing just happened to be perfect. But then everything sort of shifted about four or five years ago, and all that growth kind of went out the wayside, and you had a lot of technological shifts. You had the unbundling of cable. You have the cable cord cutters, the cord nevers, and you have Netflix and the rising tide of direct-to-consumer. So it's like, it's, it's been the wild west for the entirety of the 24 years and the wild, 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 wild west the last four years.
0: Okay. How have you mentioned Netflix, but what about other streaming services? So the fact that we're not doing this now, but I could have streamed this interview live on Instagram or on Facebook, or some people are streaming their interviews live on LinkedIn. And there are also these independent news agencies that have popped up. I mean, all of the little ones. Do any of those bigger names have talent representation?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, Joe Rogan is a great example of a guy who's an individual talent who went straight to consumer with a podcast space. And now he's did a supposedly multi-nine-figure deal with Spotify. You have, in our agency, we represent a guy named Roger Bennett, who's one half of a group called Men in Blazers, extremely popular, in the podcast, cable TV space in the soccer world, we have guys in golf who are doing very well. You have the Ringer, which is something Bill Simmons left ESPN to start this thing called The Ringer and then sold it. And you have places like, you know, this just Barstool Sports for example. You have so many different entities that are going direct to consumer that I think they're continuing to chip and chip and chip and chip and chip, and chip away at the traditional media companies who may end up buying them all or they may find themselves less valuable. I don't know how it all shakes out. Yeah. Well, I know you're
0: still an agent in addition to being the president of TMG. And I thought maybe it would be helpful for our young listeners, the aspiring young agents out there, those who maybe are curious about what it is like to be an agent for you to give us a sense, Steve, of what you do, what an agent does for your client? So,
1: every client is different. Every day is different. But I'd say that depending on where the client is in his or her career, you're trying to ferret out opportunities for the client. You're trying to develop relationships on your behalf and on their behalf that they may hire the client for a primary job, to host a show, to be a correspondent, what have you. You're finding out about opportunities that are otherwise not known in the marketplace. It's not like there's a giant job board in our industry. And if there were, it would probably make us a lot less valuable as agents. You're also trying to give the client feedback to get better at their craft. Sometimes you'll send the link out and they won't get the kind of response you want. And sometimes they won't tell you why they don't like you. But it's your job to try to figure it out if they will not tell you or ask them. And then you want the client to get better at their craft, whatever it might be, their voice, their body language, their writing, their presence, their energy. So that's what you're doing. You're also negotiating contracts. You're reviewing documents. You're also trying to find them, some of them, speaking engagements, voiceover work. It all depends on who the client is. Someone's writing a book. You want to help them craft a book proposal and then get an editor to buy them. Again, it's just so many different things that go into this job. You almost have to have highly functioning ADD to be good at it. (laughs) It sounds
0: like it. Now, is the whole voiceover book deals, is that relatively new because I don't remember hearing my colleagues talking about that 14 years ago before I left the industry.
1: Yeah, it's it's not a big part of most of our clients' lives, but it is it's a part of some of their lives, so I talk about it. Then part and parcel of that is some of our clients are getting marketing opportunities posting on social media. You know, it's not all of them, but some of them are and we have a guy whose job is just to go out and ferret out those opportunities for them. So, again, We have 250 clients. Every one of them is different. Some are really marketable at a certain place in their life with a lot of exposure. Some are just starting out. Some are in the middle. So the opportunities depend on where you are in your career.
0: So you have someone going out looking for opportunities for clients to become social media influencers. Yes. And is there a lot of money in that?
1: There is, there is. We just, the guy who runs it for us today told me about a client of ours who was offered a two-year deal with a big, you know, fitness nutrition place for $125,000 a year to be a spokesperson, mostly through social media. And I thought, wow, that's great. This person's not even a huge name. She's got a really interesting niche, Oh but, wow. Uh, she's not a major star by any means. Yeah. So can you take
0: us into a typical day for an agent? And maybe I should have started by saying, how has the coronavirus affected your business, if at all?
1: Well, it has affected our business greatly. We haven't been together as a company since March 11th, I think. And we have a daily Zoom every day. We have a guest speaker three days a week. So sometimes it's the client, sometimes it's executive, someone from the business community that we work in. And then we go around. If someone has some new information to share, we'll share it with each other. And it keeps us together. But it's different than when you're in person with people. And some of the people I've worked with on the if side, I've worked with for 20, 25 years. So I've gone five months without seeing people that I've seen virtually every day of my life for two decades. It's a little strange. I've been in relationships with these people longer than my own wife. And that's very different. And then also you have a lot of, there's been a lot of retrenchment in the industry. A lot of companies have furloughed people, they fired people, they've They have asked people to take pay cuts. So we're kind of all on this boat together, figuring out the best way to manage their careers and helping them weather the storm. Has
0: TMG had to downsize at all?
1: Luckily, we haven't. That's a decision that we've made to, you know, Sandy, myself, and our third partner, Maury Gosper, and we've decided no downsizing, no layoffs, no pay cuts, anything like that. So I feel like we're lucky to be in a position to be able to absorb it more so than our people.
0: Absolutely. So you're clearly all working from home, working remotely. What is a typical day like now during the coronavirus?
1: Well, it's just like in a normal part of your life, if you're working, you just have these lunches and these dinners and these drink meetings and breakfast set up with executives because you've had relationships with them for clients too for 10, 20 years, like I said. And so you don't really have to think about as much being in the loop with them all the time because you know you're going to see them. You know, you, you have lunch with this client over the last 20 years, you've had lunch every couple months, right? Now you're having to like really think about being proactive in maintaining these relationships. So there's a whole other layer of the job that's been put on to what you used to do, which is to try to maintain the myriad number of relationships you've built over all these years. You don't want to let them wilt.
0: So you're on Zooms or phone calls or what?
1: Zooms, phone calls. I mean, I'm communicating, believe it or not. I've gotten hip now. I didn't used to be on Instagram until about six months ago, but I'm text messaging with different clients from agencies on Instagram direct messaging. Are you? I I, I cannot believe I'm doing that, but I'm doing it now.
0: Well, listen, we're going to have to get you live streaming on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm, I'm hosting one with Clarissa Ward next month uh, on August 17th.
0: Amazing. So, uh, so tell us yeah. about it. What is this so event? I'm,
1: I've been doing a bunch of these Instagram lives. I did one with this guy, Roger Bennett, last week, from the guy from Men in Blazers. I actually interview people about their career, and I try to talk about the prism of my book, You know, Don't Take Yes for an Answer, and the are uh, pr- principles of authority, warmth, and energy and how they succeed and succeed in using those principles. And I actually interviewed a bunch of people, including Clarissa, for my own book. And so that's what I'll talk about with her. And she had some incredible things to say about how she interviews very nefarious figures, you know, people that are like the heads of terrorist organizations, and never actually questions them in terms of negating what they say, just lets them talk. And eventually, she gets what she wants. But she learned not to kind of negate them over the years of being an interviewer. I think it's a very effective way of interviewing.
0: Cool. Well, I am going to ask you about your book in just a couple of minutes. But before I do, I thought perhaps you could impart some of your wisdom and lessons learned for our young listeners who do want to become agents. What do you think the most important things for a young agent to keep in mind are to become one of the best?
1: Honestly, become an amazing, amazing communicator. Really, really learn how to win the room. Learn how to energize people. Learn how to be the person that everybody wants to be around. Be that magnetic personality, however you find that magnetism. Be someone that is trusting. Be dependable. You know, just dot all your I's, cross all your T's. Don't make spelling mistakes in emails, don't make grammatical errors. Be very detail oriented, be reliable be both reliable and be someone that is proactive. And if you have that type of personality and you have that level of proactivity, then I think you can be very successful. And also study the field, study the field. It's a very specific industry. They don't teach how to be an agent in college, graduate school. They don't teach whether you get into the movie part of the industry or the sports television business, the sports business, learn the granularity of the business know the language, know the players, know the people, know the history, read the books. I'm not great. I've done a lot of things. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. But I must have read literally 100 books on the industry, probably within the first five years I was in the business, whether it was the history of Disney or whatever it might have been to learn about who these people were. Who was Lou Wasserman? You want to know that if you're in this business. You want to know how Ronald Reagan granted the SAG waiver. You want to know that history. So if you're in a meeting with someone that you know why the world works the way it does right now, because everything always works based on something that happened in the past. If you don't know the past, you can't inform yourself in the present.
0: Are there certain qualities that you've noticed that great agents share?
1: I think it's a curiosity a real deep curiosity. If you're the type of person that likes to take apart the garage door opener when it breaks and put it back together and learn how it worked, that's the type of person that would be a great agent. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be handy, but you have to have that kind of deconstructive mindset in something. If you want to be a filmmaker, you want to know, why did Steven Spielberg pick that shot? in Jaws. Why was that the choice he made? What was he thinking in that moment? You want to try to put yourself in that mindset of the person doing the job that you want to do and understand why they did what they did so you can do it and make that same decision or different decision, but at least you know why you're making that decision in the moment. And that intellectual curiosity, that deep desire to learn, that's the quality that I find is always present in the very successful people that we've had. I read a
0: quote from one of your clients on your website, from Erica Duncan, who's a national correspondent for CBS News. And she said, finding the right agent can be difficult. You're entrusting your career to someone you barely know. After meeting Steve Hers and Jeff Feldman, I felt if management had my best interests at heart, they helped me move from Buffalo to Philadelphia and then to CBS News in New York. More importantly, IF is an agency that cares more about the people than the job. When my daughter was born, Steve and Jeff stopped by my home with cupcakes in hand to see how the baby and I were doing. That kind of care and attention is what makes IF different from other agencies. Would you say that's the kind of personal touch that sets you apart?
1: I mean, I hope so. I do think other agencies do that too. And so I think that's why we're in a very competitive field. If we were the only ones doing that, we'd probably have our pick of everybody. But I think that these are very intensely personal relationships. And if you don't care about the client, if you don't care about their families, if you don't care about them, I don't think you can do your job well. I really don't. And I've said that. We're not for everybody, our agency, but we choose to want to represent people who are really interested in a friendship, in addition to a business relationship. And that's not for everybody, but that's the way we want to do it. And so I think it's most effective that way. I mean, I'll tell you a quick story on that note. Last year, in August, a year ago, my daughter was bat mitzvahed in Israel, in Jerusalem, and Mazel one of my thank you. And one of my longtime clients, Greg Amsinger and his wife, Erica, they flew to Israel for my daughter's bat mitzvah, along with my parents, my brother. And close friends, they're with the M Singers. And, you know, that's the kind of relationship we have. And that's the kind of people that we represent. And it's an indication of, I think, it's not so much, this is not a business answer to your question, but it's the kind of life I want to live. To me, life isn't worth living or your business isn't worth doing if it's just a, a numbers game. That's going to be very disheartening, I think, in the long run.
0: A hundred percent, Steve. So, How should a young agent, someone starting out, go about recruiting those clients?
1: I mean, it's easy. You go to the smaller markets and you find people that other agencies aren't necessarily after and you show that you're the one that's going to put the time and attention into their career and then you build a relationship and you start off the way I did. You start off with Dave Revson in Quad City, Iowa who's a few years younger than me, and Chuck Garfine in Traverse City, Michigan, and Lionel Bienvenue in New Orleans, and people your own age who are smaller, who want someone who's going to grow with you, and you know Brian Anderson in small town Texas, many of these people are still my clients. You grow with them, and you see them come along. Dan Schulman, who I found when he was in Toronto at 26, and I was 27. You grow with these people, and I, I think it's just a very, very simple formula.
0: Yeah, that sounds pretty simple, but it's also having an eye for talent.
1: Yeah, I I also think it's an eye for character, more so than talent. It's an eye for character. There's a lot of people that can do this job, that can go on TV. It's it's the people that build the relationships and get along with their producers, go the extra mile and engender goodwill. Those are the people that are going to succeed in the long run. And that's the type of people we like to choose and put our bets on. It's more of a character play, in my opinion, than a talent play, or at least equally so. So let's talk
0: about your new book, Don't Take Yes for an Answer, using authority, warmth, and energy to get exceptional results. Because it sounds to me, just from that title, Steve, that that's also a character play.
1: It is a character play. Yes, it is. You're very perceptive.
0: Who did you have in mind when you were writing this book?
1: I think I had in mind maybe a little bit myself. And Maybe I was trying to think about my own children, just people who I think get this self-reinforced message every day that's so alluring. Oh, you're great. You're great. You're great. You're great. You're great. And why would you want to improve? Because you think that you're doing everything just good enough. So I, I think it's endemic throughout all of society the, the book is being written for anybody who kind of wakes up one day and says, wait a minute, I need to improve.
0: So what did you mean when you are telling your readers not to take yes for an answer?
1: What I mean by that is you're not gonna hear the word no very often. Very, very often, you, you know, you'll either hear, like I said, you're gonna get the A or the B because that's all that they give out in school anymore. You're gonna get that participation trophy and it's gonna feel like an MVP trophy. You're not gonna get fired from your job anymore because companies don't fire you. And even when they don't renew your contract, In your case, or when they downsize or reorg, they're never going to tell you, hey, you know what? You are not someone we think has a future here. Or if you had done this, this, or this differently, you would be getting your contract renewed, whatever. But they never tell you that, right? They don't give you that warning. So you get caught up in this echo chamber of yes. And look, this is me too. This is everybody. We're not honest with each other. And it's incumbent upon you who realizes that you could be doing better in life to stop taking that proverbial and metaphorical yes in your life.
0: Yeah, I mean, clearly we do have a situation now in this country where we've got more people who have lost their jobs since the Great Depression. So a lot of people are losing their jobs because of the coronavirus. But I think what you're saying is under normal circumstances, most people, eh, they'll be given some pile of whatever baloney as to why they're being let go. Or maybe as a young child, parents are bending over backwards, not wanting to disappoint their child, always wanting to build up their child. And so maybe that raises expectations to an unrealistic level.
1: I think it does. And I think it's also the fact that we end up giving them a false sense of self-esteem that's built on a house of cards, and then you take that same house of cards into your own adult life. I got an A. I graduated college with a 3.6. I must be really smart. Well, actually, I'm not that smart because I was the victim, and I use the term victim loosely here, I was the victim of great inflation. And I actually would have been a lot better had I studied X or Y more. And that, ultimately, when you turn 30 or 40, then you pay the price for that.
0: Yeah. In your book, you talk about how one of the most overlooked variables in your career is communication and why is that
1: I would say the data shows that only 15% of your success is predicated and built upon your hard skills and so we all get good enough at the hard skills because that's all we spend our time and energy on and yet it leaves that giant 85% window of soft skills and to me the soft skills are all predicated on your communication skills
0: so both writing and spoken communications.
1: Yeah. And, and just like kind of the unspoken communications, your body language, how does that make me feel when I'm around you? The energy that you're creating with me, do you create a warm energy? Are you someone I trust viscerally? These are the kinds of things that I think are really underrated, underappreciated, under discussed, And you go into the world without that understanding and that real soft skill proficiency, Mm. You go into it at your own peril. You really do.
0: Yeah. You've now touched on one of the points that you have summed up in the acronym AWE, A-W-E. Can you break that down for our young listeners?
1: Sure. It's really just a shorthand for what I think the soft skills are, or at least enough of them, is that A, authority do you present with competence? Are you someone that I believe can do the job for me? Would I hire you to operate on me or be my lawyer? Or would I promote you in my company because I believe you're competent and good at the job? Stylistically, do you have a good voice? Do you speak with passion, with energy? Do you have an emotional commitment to your own message? Do you not use filler words? That's the A piece of authority. How's your body language? Do you look me in the eye when you speak to me, right? That all goes into A authority. W is warmth. It's the trust that you engender with someone. It's that ability to connect with someone to make me feel like, hey, you care about me. I wanna do business with you. I want you to be part of my company, part of my team, because I know that you're gonna be in it for the collective good. You care about me too. You're not just in it for yourself. And are you communicating that, again, with your body language, with your verbiage, and your nonverbal communication? Do you smile at me? Are you making eye contact when I'm talking? Are you asking questions? And then the E is the energy piece how do I feel about you when I'm with you? How, what kind of a dynamic is created between us? Are you the type of person I want to be more around or less around? And those are the qualities I think that assuming everybody is somewhat equal in the hard skills, those are the qualities that are going to propel you in your life because you are going to be competing against people that are also good enough in the hard skills.
0: Yeah. So that's a distinguishing factor, the awe factor.
1: That's my thesis and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>
0: So let's flash back to when you were in college, Steve. You went to the University of Michigan, which, P.S., is one of the top schools in the country. And you majored in political science. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated?
1: No, I had no earthly idea. I was a guy who went to the University of Michigan for two reasons. One, I wanted to be a sports journalist. I was the editor of my high school newspaper sports department, and I wrote a local column in the local Long Island newspaper, and I think if you ran it to guys I went to high school with to this day, they'd say, oh, what newspaper does he write for, you know? So that's what I went to Michigan for, and I also went there because I had two older brothers that were there, and it was a school that I frankly fetishized. I loved the fight song, and the football team, and then after two years of college, I realized I didn't want to be a sports writer anymore. So I kind of had a midlife crisis at the age of 20.
0: Well, there's a great data point for you. You're probably aware of this, but 75% of college students change their majors while they're in school.
1: All right. I'm in the majority.
0: You are in the majority.
1: I'd never heard that before. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So you went straight into law school. You went from Michigan to Vanderbilt University, and you graduated with your J.D., what was your first job at of school when you graduated, and how did you get it, Steve?
1: Well, I worked as a summer associate at this law firm in 1990 for Curtis mallet Prevot. It was a school that recruited on campus after my first year at Vanderbilt. And I got the job through that on-campus recruiting. And this is the story I recount in my book, the summer of 1990. At the end of that summer, the partner who ran the, the program, the managing partner at the firm, pulled me aside, and he said, look, you know- it's a very big thing to give someone an offer, which is the norm that you would have a job coming out of school after that summer. And he said, we're not giving you a job. We don't think you should be a lawyer. We think that you're just really not cut out for this. And that is where my life took another traumatic turn at the age of 24, when I realized I really shouldn't become a lawyer. And then I went and got my first job really in the talent business was working for a small agency on Long Island called Play Pro Sports Management. And that company really didn't get off the ground. It was a a fledgling operation. And then this girlfriend that I had in law school, her best friend worked at a company called Athletes and Artists, and she made an introduction to the boss there. And I met this guy, Art Kaminsky, and he hired me in 1992. And that was really my first job in the agent world.
0: Well, I just want to pick up on the schmuck who told you that you shouldn't be a lawyer. Because, I mean, first of all, I call him a schmuck, but maybe he did you a huge favor. No,
1: no, 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 no. He is the furthest thing from a schmuck. I have to defend him. His name is Turner Smith. And I hadn't seen him in 30 years, by the way, Andrea. I reached out to him in February when the book was coming out. And we ended up going to lunch at the Yale Club. And I thanked him profusely. I think he's one of the greatest people that I've ever met in my life. He did something that nobody would do. He totally really got to know me. He knew this wasn't the right field for me, and he had the courage to be honest with me. He really did. and I think he's a hero. I wish there were more people like him. So this this is
0: really to the title of your book.
1: Don't take yes for an answer. He gave you the no. He did. He did, and he didn't have to. He could have just bullshitted me. He could have just given me some bullshit, perfunctory language like, you know what, Steve? We just didn't have space for you. You're great. It wasn't you. It was us our business is taking a downturn. He could have said anything to me, but he didn't. He was brutally honest with me in a very, very kind, decent way. And he changed my life, thankfully.
0: Okay. I reverse my (laughs) quick assessment. I take it back. Just two final questions for you, Steve. If you could share a time in your professional life when you struggled, it may have been when you were at that law firm. But most importantly, I want our young listeners to learn from you how you got through the other side of that challenging time and a lesson that you learned in the process. And I really mean it when we go back to the beginning of this interview and I shared that I should have taken you on as an agent. I mean, that was, I mean it, but the truth is I am much happier outside of journalism and I'm in my fourth career and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if I hadn't had the ups and the downs that I've had in my own career. So I want our young listeners to know that even someone who's running his own firm, who's obviously been very successful, been at it for 24 years, has had challenges. And you have to develop grit. You have to develop resilience to keep moving forward.
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, I think your question is a good one. But I've had a lot of low moments in my profession. And, you know, there's one that really sticks out to me when I quit. I was working after I worked at Athletes and Artists. I went to another company and I quit that agency. Even though I was making what I thought was a lot of money for myself because I just didn't like the way they went about their business. I thought that they were committed to the wrong things. They were working for money. And I don't want to work for money. I want to make money as a byproduct of doing something else. I wanna be with people who are really interested in making the food, and then if the food's really good, you'll sell a lot of dishes, you know what I mean? And if you're not interested in cooking the food, then I don't think you should be in the restaurant business. Or if you're not even interested in having, the food isn't good, whatever quality, you know, whatever price point you're at. And I just didn't feel like this company cared about the quality of the process of what they were doing. And so one day I just quit, and I didn't have another job. And I thought, I'm the biggest idiot that's ever lived. I just quit a great job. And the next day, I ran into this guy, Alfred Geller, in an elevator. And he was a big agent at the time. And I convinced him to start a company with me. And he lit the match in my life that changed me forever at 29. Because I found someone, a kindred spirit in a way, who cared so much about what Dana Carvey used to call chopping the broccoli. If you don't like chopping the broccoli, you don't belong in the kitchen. And he was interested in editing the real what made for a good newscaster what was your voice how was your resonance the pitch the cadence everything i talk about in my book all started with him and that to me whatever you do in your life i don't care what you're doing like you do a great job with your podcast and i think the reason why is if someone goes on your podcast they've got to come prepared because you come prepared you ask people to go through a list of 20 questions to really understand what's going to happen beforehand and that shows a lot of character on your part that you're interested, Andrea, you want to chop the broccoli. And you're not just in it to be flashy. And that I think would make you very happy in your job. And so if you can find that same level of granularity in your life, I think you can be happy doing anything.
0: I happen to love broccoli, Steve.
1: Okay, sorry. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, no.
0: I'm just teasing you. I'm teasing you. I do love broccoli. But I totally get where you're coming from. And you're saying your values were aligned with Arthur Gellin.
1: Alfred Gellin, yes.
0: Alfred, excuse me.
1: Many of my values, not all, but many. And enough, enough to give us this, this common kinship.
0: And you also had, and I mean this, with all the respect in the world, the chutzpah, you had the courage to quit your job at athletes and artists without another job. That really does take guts to do that.
1: You know, it does and it doesn't. I do agree with you on one hand, it does take guts. But I think if you look at your life and you just hate the future that you see for yourself, you have to make a change. You have to. And you got lucky. Like to your point, you got lucky. Somebody did it for you. CNN did it for you. But like you've acknowledged now with the benefit of hindsight, they did you a great favor, right? You probably couldn't have even thought about quitting. No. Right. But they did it for you. And you came out so much better off on the other side of it. And I think that if you're looking back with honesty, if you could go back to that date, 14, 13 years ago, you would say that you didn't like the future you saw for yourself either. No. It wasn't what you wanted. And I think if we can be honest with ourselves, and if we don't like the future we see for ourselves, reinvent yourself. It's not that hard. If you're good enough to get a job at CNN in the first place and ascend to the level of covering the State Department, you got to be pretty damn good in this world to begin with. And you got to have skills and abilities that are very transferable. And I think that's the lesson people should take away from what you did and from what I've done in my life, is that you can do the exact same thing because you have transferable skills, abilities, and a transferable work ethic.
0: Yes. But I will also tell you that because I had only ever been a journalist, I didn't have The confidence or the courage to quit my job, even though I had been unhappy in it ever since my son had been born. And I would come home every night, Steve, and I would cry on my husband's shoulder, and he would say, Well, do something else. You know, maybe you want to go back to school. Maybe you want this. Maybe you want. And I said, I don't know. And I did have an issue, I think, with the golden handcuffs. I didn't think I would be able to find another job where I earned that kind of money and I was enjoying earning a really good salary. And thank God they made the decision for me. I did not have the courage that you did. So let's leave it there.
1: Let me me just say one last thing on that because I think it's important for people who are struggling with this decision. Try to put yourself in a situation where you're not financially living up to every last dollar that you're making. Like I was lucky. I had saved some money I also had a roommate. I was single, 29 in New York, living in a very cheap apartment. And I had money and I was able to know that I could live for a while without having, I didn't have a family to support. So I think to the extent that anybody wants to make that change, really prepare for it and try to have a little bit of a financial cushion.
0: Definitely. And I will say fast forward to 2017, I actually quit my last job. To be a full-time stay-at-home mom and time for coffee has evolved out of that. So the truth is, I probably could have quit and we would have been fine. It would have meant an adjustment in our expenses, but I didn't even have the headspace to think that through, Steve. And I think you are a hundred percent right. Save your money and be courageous if you're unhappy where you are, and take a leap and believe in yourself.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: Final question. If you could go back to university, back to the University of Michigan and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Steve, what advice would you give yourself?
1: I will plug another book right now and give you the answer. I just finished this book called Personality Isn't Permanent by Benjamin Hardy. And he says something very profound. He said, things don't happen to you, they happen for you. I would think that I would like to interpret every single thing that happened to me along the way in an immediate, constructive way. This girl dumped me and broke my heart at 30. It only led me to a lot of misery and sadness. And then I met my wife. You know what I mean? And this job didn't work out. This guy fired me. This client didn't like me, whatever it might have been. Okay. It all works out in the end. If you keep a positive attitude and you try to learn the lesson in the moment, you're going to be successful anyway. And my life has turned out great. I just wish I didn't, you know, I'm 54 now. I, I would have saved myself 36 years of bits and bouts of silly, stupid aggravation. So I hope for the next 54 years, God willing, I live that long, I won't make the same mistakes over and over again.
0: I know you won't. And you are the second guest today to talk about the importance of a positive attitude. And he mentioned the book that I happen to be rereading right now called The Alchemist by Paul Coelho. Have you read that?
1: Sure. I have. It's a great book. I'll read it too. And it is.
0: It's all about that. It's about how shit happens in your life. And you can either take it as a, oh my God, woe is me. This is awful. And wallow in the misery and put out lots of negative energy. Okay. The awe factor that (laughs) Steve was talking about. Or like right now, we're all living in the coronavirus. There's a lot of reason to be discouraged or to feel nervous and anxious and depressed. But you can also say, what is the opportunity that I can take out of this? Just remember, this is a real low. We are going to get out of this and there are going to be time. You're going to look back on this. If you've put your head down and you just keep plodding forward and you're going to say, man, I crushed that most difficult time. I came out of that nothing is ever going to be able to throw me off my game again. I am all about that positive energy. Steve's book is called Don't Take Yes for an Answer, Now You Know Why, using authority, warmth, and energy to get exceptional results. I hope you read it. I hope it brings you comfort and inspiration. Steve, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the t for c community. And please let me know how your experience goes when you do try caffeine for the first time.
1: Thank you so much, Andrea. I will do it on all fronts. It's so great to reconnect with you after all these years. I'm really happy for you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you